Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ, and welcome to the audio ministry of Christ Church of Livingston County. The following are three excerpts from a Covenant Renewal worship service led by Pastor Dirk DeWinkle, teaching elder at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. Our call to confession this morning is from Proverbs 27, verse 19. As in water, face reflects face, so a man's heart reveals the man. In this proverb, we have a simple simile, a comparison. Water makes a natural mirror and will reflect the face of whoever looks into it. So also the heart of a man will reflect, or as the verse states, reveal the man. The word heart here refers to man's nature, who he is, who he's made of, his desires, his fears, his weaknesses and strengths. To know the features of your face, you study your reflection. To know your own heart, you can study its reflection in other people. To understand the heart of others, you can study their reflection in your own heart. Here is a profound truth to which this proverb speaks that we often forget. We, mankind, are more alike than we are unique. Psalm 33:15 says, He fashions their hearts alike. We all have inherited the same nature. We were all created in the same image, the image of God. Mankind shares in the same basic desires, fears, weaknesses, and strengths. This is why God's law is universal. Our hearts reflect each other's hearts. The understanding of this truth is at the core of love. We will know how to love others by observing how it is that we love ourselves and desire to be loved. It is the principle upon which the golden rule is founded. Do unto others as you would have them do to you. It is this principle that validates the second greatest command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Our hearts reflect each other's hearts. The understanding of this truth is at the core of humility. To know our own heart is to realize that we are not better than others and that we are not above the struggles of our neighbor. This is why Paul writes in Romans, Be of the same mind towards one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Our hearts reflect each other's hearts. The understanding of this truth is at the core of forgiveness. We can better understand the actions of our neighbor when we realize that he or she is only doing what we are also capable of or may have even done in the past. Therefore, we can forgive them more easily. Listen to this wisdom in Ecclesiastes. Also, do not take to heart everything people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. For many times also your own heart has known that even you have cursed others. Our hearts reflect each other's hearts. Understanding this should give us hope. We are not alone. Our struggles and sufferings and pain are not unique to ourselves. Therefore, we should have compassion on each other and love each other sincerely. Likewise, let us gladly receive the love and compassion that others have for us, recognizing that they can truly relate to and understand us. Finally, let us be faithful in studying God's word because it is the purest and most accurate reflection of our hearts. This proverb has reminded us that we have fallen short, that all of us have gone astray and need to confess our sins to God. So if you're willing and able, please kneel as we confess our sins to God.
Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, for the encouragement that comes from it, from the fact that you remind us over and over again that it is your initiating grace that has brought us not only into your kingdom, but into your very family. Send forth your Holy Spirit now to meet with us, to bless our time in your word this morning, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. A farmer who had experienced several bad years went to see the manager of his bank, and he sat down in his office and began by saying, I've got some good news and some bad news to tell you. Which would you like to hear first? Well, the banker answered, why don't you give me the bad news first and get it over with? So the farmer said, okay, well, with the bad drought and inflation, I won't be able to pay anything on my mortgage this year, uh, neither principal nor interest. Well, that's pretty bad, said the banker. It gets worse, said the farmer. I also won't be able to pay anything on the loan for all that machinery that I bought, principal or interest. That is bad, said the banker. The farmer went on saying, it's worse than that. You remember I also borrowed money for seeds and fertilizer and other supplies. Well, I can't pay anything on that either. Okay, that's enough, shouted the banker. Tell me what the good news is. Well, the good news, said the farmer with a smile, is that I intend to keep on doing business with you. (laughs) If we reverse the subjects in that story and put God in the place of the farmer, there's some pretty good theology there. You see, the good news of the gospel is that in spite of our total spiritual bankruptcy, God keeps on doing business with us. What images come to mind when you hear the word bankrupt? You remember back in 2008, 2009, when things were starting to get difficult for our economy and many, many people uh, were filing for bankruptcy. It signifies failure, insolvency, an inability to pay one's debts, perhaps even financial ruin. There's a certain degree of shame and disgrace that is associated with bankruptcy, even with a record number of people filing in the past decade. Now, you may never have thought of it this way before, but you and I are bankrupt. I'm not referring to our financial position. I'm talking about our spiritual condition. You and I and every person in the world, we are spiritually bankrupt. That's what the Bible tells us in Romans 3. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They've together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. And just in case we think that we can somehow do good deeds, enough of them to get into heaven, the Bible sets the record straight quite graphically. Isaiah says that all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. The good news of the gospel is that in spite of our total spiritual bankruptcy, God keeps on doing business with us. My first point this morning is simply this, that our salvation is entirely rooted in God's grace. When we were dead in our sins, God provided a way to bridge the gap between his holiness and our sinfulness. Let's just consider what grace is for a moment. It's unmerited, undeserved favor. Perhaps you've heard the acronym for grace, God's riches 
at Christ's expense. So there's three important things we want to mention about grace. First of all, the grace is undeserved. Romans 5 says, Christ died for us while we were powerless, still sinners, long before we could do anything to achieve our salvation. Grace has nothing to do with our merit or our worthiness. If we were deserving, it wouldn't be grace. Grace is God's free gift, completely unhindered by our sin, our guilt, or our unworthiness. Second, you cannot earn grace. Ephesians 2 tells us, It is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Grace and works are mutually exclusive. Paul says in Romans 11, And if by grace, then it is no longer by works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. In other words, there's never a works plus grace relationship with God. And third, you cannot repay grace. Some attempt repayment through self-sacrifice or service, as if that will somehow balance the books or keep God's blessings flowing. But God says to us, Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. So notice that the invitation of the gospel is given to those who have no money, none, not to those who simply are falling short. God does not put our good works on a scale and then make up the difference by adding his grace. He knows that we are completely unable to save ourselves. In fact, he knows that we have no desire to even be saved. Let's go back to the analogy of bankruptcy. When a person files for bankruptcy, he's got two options. Filing chapter 13 is the first option, a reorganization. The person or the business seeks a short-term reprieve from the debts that are owed and sets up a court-ordered repayment plan. On the other hand, filing for chapter 7 is much more drastic. The judge erases all the debts and you liquidate or sell off your assets to pay something back to your creditors. As devastating as it is to file for Chapter 7, which is permanent bankruptcy, there is a bright side. Jerry Bridges writes in his book, Healing Grace, the beleaguered businessman is finally free. He does not owe anyone anything anymore. His debts were not fully paid, but at least they were canceled. They no longer hang over his head. He is free from the phone calls and the demands and threats of his creditors. They cannot harass him anymore. The good news of the gospel is far better than that. Declaring spiritual bankruptcy before God is much better than declaring financial bankruptcy in two important ways. First, in the business world, the debts of the permanently bankrupt person or business are never paid in full. The creditors receive pennies on the dollar from the sale of whatever assets are there. So in the end, neither the person declaring bankruptcy nor his creditors are really satisfied. But our salvation in Jesus Christ is altogether different. 
When we receive God's gift of salvation, our total debt has been paid by the death of Jesus Christ. The demands of God's law and justice have been fully satisfied. When Jesus cried out on the cross, it is finished, the words were actually a phrase used in business language, accounting language, that meant literally paid in full. Paid in full. God is satisfied, and we are satisfied too. Romans 5.1 says, Since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace with God is ours. We are delivered from our guilty conscience. And second, not only has our total debt been paid, but there's no possibility of ever going into debt again. Jesus paid the debt for all of our sins, from the past, from the present, and into the future. So in his mercy, God has provided a grace basis for a relationship with him. It's free, it's undeserved, it cannot be repaid, and it's graciously offered to us. And the basis of salvation is receiving God's grace, not achieving It's not based on perfect performance, but on trusting faith. Now, there was a false teaching that had crept into the Galatian church in the first century, and it was this. A group of Jewish Christians preached to the new believers that they needed to do more than trust Jesus for their salvation. In addition to their faith in Christ, they needed to obey the Old Testament law. Specifically, they needed to be circumcised. And so Paul addresses their false teaching in our second text there from Galatians 3. He says, you foolish Galatians, who put a spell on you? Before your very eyes, you had a clear description of the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. Tell me this one thing. Did you receive God's spirit by doing what the law requires or by hearing the gospel and believing it? How can you be so foolish? You began by God's spirit. Do you now want to finish by your own power? That brings us to my second main point, and that is this, that unfortunately, once we are saved, most Christians live by merit and not by grace. I'd like to suggest this morning that you and I fall into the same trap that the Galatian Christians were falling into. Like the Galatians, we start out accepting God's grace as the only basis for our salvation, admitting that we're totally undeserving and have nothing to offer him but our sins and our failures. But then later we start to believe that the continuation of God's grace toward us depends on how well we perform. We start trying to pay our own way by our performance, adding our good works into the mix. We may not go out and get circumcised, But we do our good deeds thinking that that's the way to keep God's blessings coming our way. So if we use again that bankruptcy analogy, we unconsciously admit that when we came to faith in Christ, we only declared temporary bankruptcy. We only filed chapter 13, a court-approved payment structure to pay back our debts. The person who only files the temporary bankruptcy is not free from his debts like the one who files for a permanent. No, when you file for temporary bankruptcy, you get a short-term reprieve from the creditors, but you're still on the hook for the debt. 
And so now you have to work extra hard to turn things around and make a profit because your creditors still need to be paid. So you're anything but free. And so that is how we find ourselves on the performance treadmill. It's hard, it's stressful, and it's scary. Do you know what it's like, spiritually speaking, to be saved by grace, but to have only declared temporary bankruptcy? It means that you live on a merit system with God. You live with fear and anxiety because you believe that God will only love you and accept you if you perform well. And when you don't perform well, and that's true for all of us, you feel all kinds of guilt and condemnation. You sense the judgment of God. You feel like a fake because of the huge chasm between who you are and who you ought to be as a Christian. In fact, we take the very channels of grace, such as prayer and worship and reading God's word and sharing our faith and performing acts of service, and we turn them into Christian works of performance. What do I mean by that? In his work, Healing Grace, author David Siemens writes that there is a malignant virus at the heart of every human being. It is the ultimate lie that persuades us that every human relationship in life is based on performance, that is, on what we do. We learn it from our families, that love is conditional. We learn it from our culture. To succeed in school or the workplace, we must perform well. And so we build our lives on the assumption that everything depends on what we do and how well we perform, on our efforts, our work. We believe that we will enjoy acceptance and love if we can win them, and we will enjoy success and status if we can earn them. This performance orientation is especially crucial to our significant relationships. And by that I mean our relationship with God, our relationship with our very selves, our relationships with our parents and children, our friendships, our work relationships, our relationship to society. In other words, whether or not God loves us, or whether we can feel good about ourselves, or whether other people will like us, or whether we will be considered a success in life, it all depends, it all comes down to how well I perform. Max Lucado captures it well in his book titled Grace. He says, we are tired, a tired people, a tired generation, a tired society. We race, we run, we slug our way through the long lines and long hours with faces made long by the long list of things we need to do, gadgets we want to buy or people we try to please. Everything needs our attention. The government wants more taxes, the children want more toys, the boss more hours, the parents more visits, and the church, oh, the church. Have I mentioned the church? Serve more, attend more, host more, read more. And what can you say? After all, the church speaks for God. We preach grace to the non-Christian, but we preach duty to the Christian. We speak of the gift of salvation, but then in the next breath, we speak of the cost of discipleship. Do you see the danger that is there? I'm not saying 
that there is no place, no place for hard work and effort. Please don't hear that this morning. That's not what I'm saying. Have you ever been on an actual treadmill before? Maybe you have one at home or you've been on one at school or in the gym. I remember the first time that I went, there was a whole lineup of them. And I got on and figured out how to get going. And they had a a bank of TVs up there. And I I got interested not in the one directly in front of me, but the one that was a few down. And so my, my, my gaze and eventually my body was turning that way. And all of a sudden, I don't know what happened, but whoop, and I was five feet behind the treadmill on the floor. I don't know what hurt more, the physical whack of landing on my hip or the uh, psychological pain of feeling embarrassed. Speaking of the performance treadmill and how it relates to us as Christians, Larry Crabb says, I'm so weary of trying to get it right. Performance is such a treadmill, but the blessings I now enjoy may not continue, and the ones I still want to enjoy may never come. I must do better, but I am so tired. So how does this play out in our daily lives? I would invite you to take the time to examine the motives behind your actions. Let me ask you, if you begin the day by spending time in God's Word, What's your motive? Do you believe that if you read the Bible, then God will bless you today? Do you believe that you'll earn demerits if you fail to read the Bible, or you don't read it as long as you would on most days, so then that day you'll receive some demerits? That God will withhold his blessing from you? Or ask yourself, why does God answer my prayer? Is it because I had a quiet time this morning or I engaged in other spiritual disciplines? Does he answer my prayer because I have not openly sinned or entertained sinful thoughts? Or on the other hand, why has God not answered my prayer? Is it because I skipped my quiet time this morning or I missed worship last Sunday? There's a balance there to be found in God's word. In the book of Isaiah, God says his hand is not too short to save those, but he says your sins have gotten in the way. So there is absolutely a connection between our sins and God not answering prayer. But on the other hand, it does not follow that if I don't sin, God will automatically answer my prayers. There's a bigger complexity to it, right? God sees the whole picture. His ways are higher than our ways. God may love us, as we see in 2 Corinthians 12 with Paul praying about his thorn in the flesh. He may love us enough to answer our prayer with a no. I was teaching this morning to a group that are between 70 and 90 years old. And I was saying, you know, the older we get and can look back, the bigger history we build of saying, thank you, Lord, for not answering that prayer back then with a yes. But at the time, we don't understand it. And sometimes, and what I'm getting at this morning with this treadmill concept is that we can build a mechanical view of God that says, because I do this, then God must do that. And that's a very dangerous place to get. 
It's a very, it, it, it's what happened with Job and his friends. Remember how they came after all had happened to him and the first seven days they just sat there quietly in silence? That was probably the best ministry they did. It was when they opened their mouths to speak that things went south quickly. And the reason things went south quickly was because they had a mechanical view of God that said, if I do this, then God must do that. And that's a dangerous place to go off into, to say that God must do something. God must do something. Let me come at this a little bit differently. Perhaps a more helpful way to summarize this is that it's the difference between a servant mentality, being the servant to a family, and a child mentality, being an actual member of a family. How do I see myself in relation to God? More like a servant or more like his child? You see, a servant is appreciated and accepted on the basis of what he does. A child, on the other hand, is accepted and appreciated on the basis of who he is. A servant starts his day anxious, worried, wondering if his work will really please his master. A child, on the other hand, rests in the love and security of his family. The servant is accepted because of his workmanship, the son or daughter because of the relationship. The servant is accepted because of his productivity and performance. A child belongs because of his position as a person. And at the end of the day, the servant has peace of mind only if he's sure that he has proven his worth by his work. The next morning, the anxiety begins again. By contrast, the child is secure all day and knows that tomorrow won't change his status. When a servant fails, his whole position is at stake. He might lose his job. When a child fails, he will be grieved because he's disappointed his parents, and he will be corrected, and he will be disciplined. But he's not afraid of being thrown out. His confidence is in belonging and being loved, and his performance does not change the stability of his position. So let's go back to Galatians 3, verse 3. Paul writes, How can you be so foolish? You began by God's Spirit. Do you not want to finish by your own power? Then in verse 10, Those who depend on obeying the law live under a curse. For the scripture says, Whoever does not always obey everything that is written in the book of the law is under God's curse. That brings me to my third point. That it's only when we live the Christian life by grace alone that we can be set free from the performance treadmill. In Colossians 2.13, Paul says, God forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. So if all our sins have been forgiven, we don't have to start all over again and try to keep the slate clean. Steve Brown wrote years ago, God took our slate and he broke it in pieces and threw it away. There is no more slate. God is not keeping score. He is not granting or withholding blessings on the basis of performance. The score has been permanently settled by Christ. And so from our text, Galatians 4.4 says, When the proper time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a human mother, born under the jurisdiction of the law, that he might redeem those who were under the authority of the law and lead us into becoming by adoption true sons, true daughters of God. It is because you really are his sons 
and daughters that God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts to cry, Father, Abba, you are not a servant any longer. You are a son, a daughter, and therefore you are certainly an heir of God through Christ. No longer a servant of God, instead a son or daughter. Why is it so hard to get that into our heads and into our hearts? Living by grace rather than by works means we are free from the performance treadmill. It means God has already given you an A when you deserved an F. It means you don't have to perform spiritual disciplines in order to gain God's approval. Jesus Christ has already done that for you. His righteousness was placed upon us. And that's how the Lord views us, even when we sin. It means we don't have to earn God's blessings through suffering or sacrifice or hard work. It is impossible to earn God's blessings. We are loved and accepted through the merit of Jesus Christ. And we are blessed by God through the merit of Jesus Christ. Years ago, I remember a pastor saying, nothing you do will ever cause the Lord to love you any more or less, to bless you more or bless you less. I didn't understand that then. But he loves us solely by grace, the grace given to us through Jesus Christ. So in the end, it's a matter of where you and I put our focus. Hebrews 13, 9 says, Your heart should be strengthened by God's grace, not by obeying rules. So where will your focus be? Upon God and his efforts? Upon God and his grace? Or upon you? and your efforts. There may be a lot of things you have to earn in this life, but God's unfailing love for you is not one of them. You already have it. And God has enough grace to solve every problem that you face, to answer every question that you ask, to wipe every tear that you cry. If he allows the challenges that come your way, he will provide his grace to meet them. How could we expect anything less from him? Romans 8 says, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? A few years ago, a physician by the name of Kyle Sheets and his daughter Heather were treating AIDS patients in Zimbabwe. They were both doctors. They spent several weeks a year doing mission trips in hospitals. After completing a surgery, they took a break and Heather noticed a cut on her father's hand. Kyle explained that the cut had occurred during the operation, and they both realized the danger to him. So Heather urged her dad to begin immediate antiretroviral treatment in order to prevent the HIV infection. Kyle, however, was reluctant because he knew that several of the side effects could be life-threatening. Still, because of his daughter's insistence, he agreed to the treatment. But within hours, he became violently ill. And in the days that followed, things went terribly wrong. He broke out in a rash called Stevens-Johnson syndrome, which is almost always fatal. So Heather booked a flight back to the United States, wondering if her father would survive the 40-hour trip. He boarded the plane with a fever of 104.5. He was moving into liver failure. He could not sit up. He was no longer coherent. Heather says that she felt the full weight of her father's life 
on her shoulders. She wondered how, whether she'd be able to pull her father's body into the aisle to do CPR if his heart stopped on the flight. Eventually, Kyle fell asleep. Heather went quickly to the bathroom, and she simply fell to the floor, crying out and praying, Lord, I need help. Eventually, someone knocked on the bathroom door and asked, do you need some help in there? She opened the door to find four men standing there, and she assured them that she was okay and told them she was a doctor. The men smiled and explained that they were doctors, too. They said, and so are 96 other passengers on this flight. There were 100 physicians on board that plane. Heather explained the situation, asked for their help and their prayers. They called for one of their passengers who was a specialist in infectious diseases. He evaluated Kyle and offered to watch him so Heather could rest. And when Heather woke up, Kyle was standing and talking to the doctors. Heather began to see God's hand at work. He had placed them on exactly the right plane, with exactly the right people. God had met their need with grace. Kyle went on to a full recovery. He didn't contract the HIV. Later, he said, as Heather wheeled me onto the plane, I wondered if anyone would be on board to help us. He soon discovered that God answered his prayer a hundred times over. John's Gospel says, from the fullness of God's grace, we have all received one blessing after another. Like waves breaking onto the beach, God's blessings keep coming from an inexhaustible supply. And if you belong to Jesus Christ, God will meet your needs with grace as well. Perhaps your journey's difficult now. Maybe you're experiencing sickness, tension in relationships, problems that cannot be solved by sunset each day. God says his spirit is in you. Jesus Christ is interceding at the right hand of the Father for you. God himself says he will never leave you, he will never forsake you, that underneath are his everlasting arms. He says his sufficient grace will meet you at your point of need and give you what you need. He will meet every single challenge you face. And that's why we sing in the beloved hymn, Amazing Grace, "'Tis grace had brought me heart of this... Let me try that again. "'Tis grace hath brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home." So I encourage you this morning to keep your focus on God and His amazing grace. Remind yourself each day of all the ways He's already shown grace to you. Take time to thank Him. He's made you His child. You're no longer a servant. Let His love for you compel you to live your life for Him and His glory. Not out of fear and not out of duty, but out of gratitude and out of love. For we are brought into God's kingdom by grace, we are sanctified by grace. The blessings we receive throughout this lifetime come by his grace. And we are motivated to love God and serve him because of his grace. Finally, we receive strength to endure trials and hardships by grace. And one day we will be glorified by grace. Grace, the entire Christian life, is lived under the umbrella under the reign of God's grace. Let's pray.
Our Father in heaven, your word says your heart should be strengthened by God's grace, not by obeying rules. We confess it's just so difficult to really believe that we can continue in our relationship with you simply based on your grace. Forgive us for that performance mentality. Help us to spend time in your word, refreshing our understanding each day of what it means to live under the reign of your grace. We ask this in the precious name of the Lord Jesus Christ, who taught us to pray. Second Corinthians 2.15 For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. I am a fool for Yvonne's cinnamon rolls. And yesterday morning our house was filled with the aroma of the rolls baking and it was glorious. Smell is essential to what we call eating and drinking. You know what it's like to eat when you have a terrible cold. Your senses and your taste is just dulled and maybe you can't really taste at all. So when we sit down at this meal with the Lord Jesus at the head of the table, we are partaking of a very simple meal, bread and wine. And because of this simple, the simpleness here, we may mistake and forget that one of the most, features, the most important features of food and drink is the wonderful blessing of aroma. So what is the aroma here? That's simply another way of asking how this meal should taste. Paul teaches us that we are one loaf and that we are one body. From the Corinthians verse that we opened with, Paul teaches that Christians are the aroma. We are the aroma of God to those who are not yet in Christ. The Lord Jesus was bruised for our iniquities. As the Puritan Thomas Watson observed, it's when spices are bruised and crushed and broken that they give off their aroma. So as we lay down our, uh, surrender our lives for others, we sacrifice for others, lay down our lives for others, it's in such a way that we manifest the aroma of life unto life. For those who are perishing, it's a stench. But this is only because they have no stomach for the bread of life. They have no taste for the wine that washes away every bitter taste that sin leaves in the mouth. This meal is supposed to have an aroma for us. When we gather together in love like this, what aroma should strike us in the face when we enter the room? We know what it's like to walk into a room in a home where the cook has been busy all day cooking things. And this service should far surpass that that meal, the love and smells that are here should taste and the love should be like nothing else. All the delightful smells that you have ever encountered together with food are just faint types and shadows. I ask, may God work his way in us, that our relationship to him, to one another, and to the world release irresistible aromas. So we welcome you all to Christ's table. Christ's body, broken for us. Let's pray. 
Thank you for listening to these excerpts from the worship service of Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in these messages, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact Pastor Dirk DeWinkle through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.